So right. go ahead and go. All right. <clears throat> Hi there. Welcome to Alliance for Science Live. Today's guest is Greg Jaffe. He's the Associate Director of Policy and Regulatory Affairs for the Alliance for Science and also the Director of the Project on Biotechnology for the Center for Science in the Public Interest. Greg's an internationally recognized expert on agricultural biotech and biosafety, and he earned his law degree at Harvard, so he does know his stuff on this topic. And today he's here to talk about the U.S. Department of Agriculture's new rule for genetic engineering. Welcome, Greg. How are you today? Uh, good. Thank you very much, Joan. I'm happy to be here and looking forward to uh, providing our viewers and listeners with some new information about a recently uh, issued rule by USDA and then uh, taking questions and hopefully being able to uh, give people some understanding of what I think is a pretty complex regulatory system. Well, thank you for being willing to walk us through what you said is technical. I'm sure people will appreciate the fact that you've done all the work to understand this before sharing it out. So um, I will reiterate that we're happy to take questions. People can put it in the chat box or they can leave a comment on Facebook. And then if there's something that comes up as we're going along, we'll address it. Otherwise, we'll just take some questions at the end. Um, so Greg, I believe you were going to share a PowerPoint um, for your presentation. Yes. Okay. Oh, I think that's the end of the presentation. Sorry about that. There we go. Okay. Uh, can everybody, can you see that, Joan? Yes, I can. It looks great. Okay. So uh, good morning, everybody, or good afternoon to people that are in different time zones. Or, um, I'm going to talk today, uh, spend about 30 minutes or so on the new USDA oversight of genetically engineered plants, uh, the new secure rule that was issued just about a month ago by USDA that's been in a long process of getting, revising the USDA, US government's regulations. Um, I'm gonna first uh, talk a little bit about just how US regulates genetic engineer agricultural products, for those of you who are not familiar with that, give a very short background on that. Then I am gonna give some background on what is the current USDA regulatory oversight, what happens now uh, at USDA for its regulation of agricultural biotechnology. Then I'll talk about this new secure rule What's that going to do? And then I'll end with a little bit of what I think some of the impacts of that rule might be going forward. So when we look at the US government regulation of, of biotechnology or agricultural biotechnology, uh, we really talk about a regulatory system that involves three different agencies, the Food and Drug Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the US Department of Agriculture. And they use a variety of laws to regulate different aspects uh, related to those products. So uh, FDA uses the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and they answer questions about whether food, uh, food from biotech plants and animals are safe for human and animal consumption, uh, whether they are properly labeled. EPA is primarily uh, interested in uh, pesticides and crops that are pesticides uh, because they're genetically engineered and whether those are safe uh, using the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. And EPA, I mean, USDA regulates under the Plant Protection Act, and they're really looking at, you know, whether plants are safe, genetically engineered crops are safe for plant health. Um, they're looking at sort of impacts on the environment and on agriculture. 
So those are the three agencies, the various laws. We're not going to spend time on all of those. But I wanted to put up this frame to show you that, you know, you have these three agencies regulating and their oversight can overlap. And so we can have uh, products that have either regulated by one agency, by two agencies, or by three agencies. And so as you see in this diagram, which I guess got, came from the U.S. government, um, you could have uh, overlap. And so crops, crops or animals, plants could be regulated by more than one agency. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but um, I think in a nutshell, when we are talking about genetically engineered plants, and that's what I'm primarily going to focus on today, because that's what the USDA regulation primarily changes the oversight of, um, you really have situation where based on the trait that you're introducing into the crop and the different kind of crop, you can have either one, two, or three agencies regulating. And that regulation can be mandatory for some uh, agencies such as EPA or voluntary for other agencies such as U uh, FDA. And so, again, I'm not gonna go through this. And so you can have, a, uh, if we look at the different crops and traits, you can have three agencies, two agencies, one agency, or even no agencies regulating a, a specific genetically engineered plant. And I'm happy to answer more questions on that later if people have them. The one other thing I wanted to mention about the regulatory system in the United States is, you know, so U.S. government has been regulating uh, agricultural biotechnology products and plant and genetic engineered plants for you know more than 30 years now by these three different agencies, and those regulations change over time. And one nice thing about uh, re uh, having regulations is those can be changed by agencies. They don't need Congress or laws uh, and the president to be changed to change those. And so last year, just about a year ago, uh, President Trump issued an executive order on modernizing the regulatory framework for agricultural biotechnology project, products. And I wanted to mention this executive order because um, you know, I think that this USDA rule change really attempts to implement this order by USDA. And so this was an order um, and what it did, um, and some of it made you know, infinite sense is that the federal, federal oversight of genetic engineered plants should be science-based, timely, efficient, and transparent. I don't think anybody can argue with those principles. Uh, they wanted to make sure we have a science-based regulatory system that evaluates products um, and their potential benefits and risks, but also uh, fosters confidence in biotechnology and avoids undue regulatory burden, um, and that it's proportionate. Um, so that's, you know, it doesn't uh, make arbitrary or unjustifiable dis distinctions. So see, these are some of the policies that that executive order told agencies to make sure to, to accomplish. Um, and how would they do that? Um, they asked to have set up a unified biotech web platform to identify areas to streamline, to address existing uh, regulatory, uh, to exempt low risk products um, and to avoid undue barriers for developers. And I'm gonna focus on the issues of streamlining and uh, exempting low risk products because I think those are two areas mentioned in the executive order that are implemented by these new regulations that came out by USDA. So with that little background on the uh, federal government oversight, I wanna talk about what is the current USDA regulation. And as I said, US, USDA has been regulating genetic engineered plants for some 30 plus years now um, under the Plant Protection Act. And those regulations have changed over time. And this is just one more reiteration of those regulations to some extent. So uh, as we said, USDA regulates based on the Plant Protection Act. They're concerned with plant pest risks and they address the import of plant material, field trial permits, as well as commercial release. And the question that they ask is, 
is the genetically engineered product, in this case the plant, a potential plant risk? And the safety standard they, uh, they impose is that the, the, that plant should not pose an unacceptable plant pest risk. So this is not an absolute safety standard. We call it a relative safety standard. We're talking about unacceptable plant pest risk. Um, and there are regulations, and these regulations, uh, for those who are interested, are find at 7 CF Code of Federal Regulations Part 340. Um, but the gist of those regulations say that you can't introduce a regulated article, in this case, a genetically engineered plant, without getting authorization from USDA. And so that's, that's the regulatory hook, that's the legal, re legal requirement. And so what is regulated under the current regulations? So the, under the current regulations, any genetically engineered organism where the transformation occurred using a plant pest. And the best example I can give here is, is if you've transformed a plant with genetic engineering through agrobacterium, you've used agrobacterium as your transformation method. Agrobacterium is a known plant pest, and so uh, they've regulated those crops because of your use of agrobacterium. The second one is if you introduced, if any of the introduced DNA into that plant comes from a plant pest. So if you used a uh, promoter sequence to turn the plant on from the cauliflower mosaic virus. Cauliflower mosaic virus is a known plant pest, and so you've used DNA from a plant pest, so you're regulated. The regulations also say that if there's an unclassified organism, if they don't know whether anything you've used is a plant pest or not, or if the administrator has reason to believe it could be a plant pest, then you regulate it. Uh, two things I would mention about current regulation is one, it's event specific. So every time you introduce, even if you introduce the same gene, uh, but in a different place, each event is regulated. And on the whole, we would say that it's process-based. It's a based on how, how you've, uh, the fact that you've engineered the plant, not based on the final trait of that plant. And so the regulatory process currently at USDA is they have three different procedures that you can go through to get that authorization that's needed to uh, introduce that, to use that plant pest, excuse me, that genetically engineered plant. The first one is notification, which is sort of like a notice and go. A company's uh, developer submits a notification to USDA that says that, you know, this is what we've done to genetically engineer our plant, and we're going to do a field trial with it, and we're going to agree to meet cer certain field trial restrictions. And so they sort of, they go and do this, and unless USDA tells them not to do it, they can just go ahead and do it. The second one is permitting, where you actually come in and you ask for a permit to be able to do that. And for both notification and permitting, these are primarily for things like field trials. And as you can see on the slide, more than 25,000 field trials have been authorized under these two procedures over the last several decades. The third procedure is the petition for non-regulated status. And that is a situation where after a developer's done field trials and wants to commercialize that crop, you can't actually actually have permits for every farmer to grow a crop, so you petition for non-regulated status, uh, show, proving to, to USDA that you're no longer a plant pest risk, and there have been more than 140 plants that have been gone through that process to date. So that's the current regulatory process, and here's just a, a, a screenshot from the petitions for determination for non-regulated status. You can go on USDA's website and see all the, all the products that have been through that regulatory process. The one final process I want to mention, because it's related to the new processes, uh, about, about 10 years ago, USDA established an am I regulated process. This was a process that, uh, that allowed developers to come forward at the beginning of their 
development and say, this is what I'm going to do to this crop. This is uh, what I'm, how I'm going to engineer it. This is what I'm going to use for my transformation method. Um, am I regulated? And USDA has gotten more than 90 inquiries of these am I regulated letters and virtually in all of them, USDA has come back and said they're not regulated. And so they said, if, you're, if you aren't using agrobacterium, but you're using the gene gun for your transformation, then you're not regulated because you don't have a plant pest uh, is an example of that. And so that's been another regulatory process. So now that you understand a little bit about the current regulatory system and the system that USDA has been doing for the last several decades, I'm going to talk about this new rule that came out on May 18th. So a little background on that, USDA has tried to revise their rules for more than a decade now. Um, you know, I think that's a, one of the good things about the US regulatory system is that the agencies are con constantly trying to revise their rules, trying to make them more science-based, trying to do things to, uh, based on what they've learned in the past. And so in 2008, USDA proposed changes to part 340 to its regulations. They got, it looks like 88,000 comments on it. And eventually they withdrew that rule in 2015. Um, then they went in 2017 and proposed the rule again again, did public meetings, had public comments, and then decided in, uh, to withdraw that rule later that year. Um, and then in June of 2019, after additional public engagement, they proposed the third time to revise their rules. And this is the, uh, they had a public comment period that ended in August, and then last August, and then this May, they issued that final rule. And they call that rule the sustainable, ecological, consistent, uniform, responsible, efficient, secure rule. And that's what we're now going to spend all the rest of our time talking about. So I do want to put up at the beginning, uh, I am a lawyer and I'm going to give you some legal, legal terms and definitions. And so the most one of the interesting ones in this final rule is how they define genetic engineering. And so genetic engineering is defined as techniques that use recombinant, synthesized or amplified nucleic acid to modify or, or create a genome. And so I would tell you that I think that's a very broad definition. So for those of you out there are thinking, well, does this apply just to classical genetic engineering, GMOs? Does it apply for gene editing? Does it apply to synthetic biology? I think if you look at that definition, you'll see that all of those things are included in that definition. And so they initially come into the scope of this regulation. And you know, interestingly, so you know, the US government is now saying genetic engineering means both um, gene editing and, and more classical GMOs. So uh, this is my attempt as a, in a slide to try to explain the regulatory system and all the different major procedures that are in that rule. Um, I apologize if it's a little busy, but I think hopefully you'll get a good feel for how, what are the procedures and how the new regulations are gonna operate through this rule. As I mentioned, we're talking about, uh, this requires the developer, a company or a researcher an academic who's, who's developing a new genetically engineered seed variety. Again, with that definition, genome modified by recombinant synthesizer amplified nucleic acid, they have to do one of these following procedures. And so I'm gonna go through this step by step. So, um, and the way I've done this is I've broken it into the different kinds of uh, genetically engineered seeds or plants that might be developed with genetic engineering. So the first category is plants with a single deletion, substitution, or addition. And the rule talks about those if they come from the plant gene pool. So you might think of these as what we, a lot of us think about as gene editing. 
um, but simple gene editing, only a single deletion, substitution, or addition. So that's one category of plants. Um, a second category is plants with a plant trait mechanism of action previously reviewed by USDA. So if I mentioned earlier, we had these petitions for non-regulated status and virtually all of the genetically engineered crops that are grown in the United States today have been through that uh, non-regulated status process. So for example, herbicide tolerant uh, canola or you know, or, uh, uh, glyphosate tolerant you know, soybeans. And so what USDA has said here is if you have a, with the same plant, if you have a plant, in this case, soybeans, trait, glyphosate tolerance, and it has the same mechanism of action, it's gonna qualify, a new one that is the same as those old ones is gonna qualify under this category. And so what do we, what does the regulation say about these two categories? And it says that these two categories are exempt from any oversight, okay? So these are the exemptions. They fall within the definition of genetic engineering and a genetic engineered plant, but they're exempt from any oversight. And that exemption can happen two different ways. The company can self-determine, the developer can say, you know, I did a single deletion in a plant uh, and therefore I'm exempt. Or they can say my plant has the same plant trait mechanism of action as a previously reviewed USDA crop as seen on their list of non-regulated status. So it's exempt. Or USDA gives them the option of, of getting a confirmation letter so they can submit their decision that this is exempt to USDA and get a confirmation. That they are that they have made the correct decision, and it's the developer's choice whether they want to do either one of those. The result is that the plant is not regulated, so there's no oversight. That means no oversight at the field trial level, no oversight at the commercial release level, no oversight anywhere at any time from USDA. So those are two categories of what we would call new genetically engineered seed varieties. A third variety. Uh, type of plant would be a plant with multiple genome edits. Okay, so this would be some, this would be a plant where you might have two deletions or two substitutions or two additions or, or more than two. And um, those are not automatically exempt like a single deletion. And instead, those go through what the regulations establish, which is a regulatory status review. And uh, um, I will explain that in a minute, but that's the likely the likely procedure that they will go through. They can also, USDA has put in a, an ability for somebody who has done, let's say somebody, a developer has made two edits and they want, they feel that it should be exempt. So they can petition for a new exemption category. And USDA has said that they will consider new categories for exemptions. In order to do this, that developer would have to provide a scientific record explaining why the uh, this is a should be exempt and the main issue that they're trying to establish for USDA is that this is something that could have been done through conventional breeding so they can argue that making these two particular edits are the type of thing that could be done with conventional breeding and they have a scientific record to, to show that then there could be a new exemption category and then in that case they, those would not be regulated and in the future somebody else could take advantage of that exemption category and go through the exemption processes. So that is something they could do. And also, if you have a plant with multiple genome edits, you can apply for a USDA permit. So you can go through the regulatory status review, but you also can just apply for a permit. Uh, why would a, a developer do that? 
issuing a permit doesn't take very long. It's very fast. And if, if you don't want to go through the regulatory status review, you could just say, well, I, it's easier for me to get that permit, um, do the confinement conditions, and go ahead and do my research or, or develop my crop. So the fourth type of plant that I think falls within this definition are plants with other genomic changes. So this would be additions of DNA not from the plant's gene pool, and this would be all those transgenics that we think about where you're taking a gene from one species and introducing it to another. These would be a lot of those classical GMOs that we've always talked about. And those can, will have two choices. They can either go through the regulatory status review, um, which again, I'll get to in a second, or they can go through and get, get a USDA permit. Um, and they, again, the developer has the choice of which one to do in that instance. So for the plants with multiple genome edits and the plants with other genomic changes, the likely pathway that I think most developers will choose would be to go through the regulatory status review. So what is the regulatory status review? That is, to a large extent, um, put, requesting that USDA determine whether these are, which, what you've done has any potential plant pest issues associated with it. And so what USDA says is they'll do an initial review uh, for 180 days and determine whether there's any plausible plant pest risk. If there's no plausible plant pest risk, which is the, the left uh, um, box there, then the crop is not regulated. And this initial regulatory status review doesn't require the developer to provide any specific, any crop specific data. They would look generally at the trait that you're introducing. They would look at the crop and the, and the, and the characteristics of weediness and other characteristics of the plant that you are engineering and determine whether there's any plausible plant pest risk. So if they decide that there is a plausible plant pest risk, which is the second uh, box, uh, the box to the right, then the developer has two choices. Then they can either get an issue, get a permit. They can they always have the option of going and getting the permit, which is the fast process, but means that you're regulated. Or you can do the second half of the regulatory status review, which is a process that USDA says will take up to 15 months, where they will look and do a detailed investigation um, to determine if there's a plausible plant pest risk. And this process, they liken most to that deregulation process, that regulation for that, that determination of non-regulated status. Again, what may come out of that is most crops would be still not regulated, but there is a chance that they would come out to be regulated. Um, if a crop is regulated, whether it gets a permit or at the end of the detailed investigation, that means that in order to do a field trial, you have to have all kinds of containment conditions uh, anytime you release that plant into the open. If you're not regulated, then you don't have to do any of that. Um, and so when you look at this, this whole procedure, where would different plants, where would uh, different plants that have been engineered in the past fall? We have plants with other genomic DNA, plants that have been in the past transformed with agrobacterium. What would happen with those? They would go through the regulatory status review, but most likely, they would be found, and USDA has said that they have no plausible plant pest risk because they don't believe anymore that use of agrobacterium in and of itself raises a plant pest risk. And so most of those would be not regulated. So they're clearly, um, when we talk about the implications, you'll see that, that um, 
there are less crops that will, most of the crops will go into that non-regulated category. So just wanted to explain uh, USDA's scientific rationale for its single deletion substitution or ex addition exemption. Um, and this is uh, a slide taken directly from a slide that USDA used to explain the secure rule, where they say that plants created through conventional breeding have a history of safe use related to plant pest risks. Um, and therefore they exempt plants that mimic what can be created through conventional breeding um, and that there's no evidence of the use of genetic engineering in and of itself introduces any plant pest risk. And so based on those three uh, decisions by them, those plants are exempt. So I think that gives you a little bit of an explanation of, of where they're coming from them when they're making that exemption. Uh, this is another slide that I took from USDA's website um, to show what's the current, uh, how this rule will be implemented. So as I said, it was issued on May 18th, 2020. Um, it is going to be implemented over a period of 18 months. So we just hit the first milestone of July 17th where uh, the AMI regulated process has been discontinued. Um, but after 90 days, that exemption confirmation process, process will then kick in and various other things will happen. The, the, uh, the regulatory status reviews will kick in in April uh, of 2021 and the whole rule will be fully, fully implemented by October 1st of 2021. When you compare the old regulations and the new regulations, this comes from USDA's website. Um, the way they describe it is that the exemptions and confirmations that I talked about, um, they, they're replacing the AMI regulated process. So um, that process where a developer would go and ask AMI regulated, now you don't have to do that. You're either automatically exempted or you can get a confirmation that you're exempted. The regulatory status review process that I mentioned, that's re replacing the petition process that we discussed, that I discussed, where you go and get a petition to show that you're no longer regulated, that you no longer have any plant pests. And then the permitting process is a continuing thing, but they've discontinued the notification process. So if you are getting a permit, you have to go through the full permitting process, although that's a pretty quick process. I, I want to say that it's, uh, permits are issued within 120 days under the, under the new regulations. So um, unless there are any major questions about that, I'm going to go on just to finish up with the impacts of the final rule before I get to questions. That sounds good. Um, so what are some of the impacts of this final rule? Um, so both USDA, what USDA said, and the way I interpret the rule, is that the universe of regulated products will be greatly re reduced. We have these automatic exemptions for some gene edited plants, but those exemptions are, are limited. They are limited to single deletions, additions, or substitutions. And if you're making an addition, the addition has to be from the plant's existing gene pool, not what could be done conventionally, but what actually exists in the pool today. And so the question is, is this a majority of gene edited plants that are gonna be commercialized or, or not? Um, I think that's sort of an open question, whether most gene edited plants that end up being commercial products, will they be single edits or will they have multiple edits engaged with them? Um, but, but I think independent of that, most gene edited plants will not require regulation. If you have those multiple edits, they will go through that RSR, that regulatory status review process. But in the end, I think many of those will be determined by USDA to not have a plant, plausible plant pest risk associated with them and they will be not regulated uh, in terms of their oversight for the field trials or commercial release. 
Similarly, most GMO plants that use agrobacterium will no longer be regulated. USDA made a point both in the proposal and the final rule to mention that they don't believe that the, the use of agrobacterium in and of itself raises a plant pest risk uh, as the transformation method to introduce the new DNA. And so they say that those won't require uh, field, won't require permits. They will require under the current rule, under the, the final rule, they will be required to go through the RSR process. But as I said, they'll most likely go through that, only the first stage of that process, which takes 180 days and will be determined to be, have no plausible plant-based risk, at least because of the agrobacterium, use of agrobacterium, and then not be regulated. Um, what do we get from all of those first couple of points is that almost all field trials will no longer be regulated. And USDA says that in the final rule. Um, so that developers will be able to do field trials without any confinement conditions. And we can talk about uh, the merits of that or the implications of that, but I think that's a, a factual statement. Um, in particular, USDA has regulated plant incorporated plants in, full, in, in small field trials, the plants that have a pesticide built in, such as the BT cotton or BT corn. Um, they've always regulated the small field trials and then EPA came in and regulated large scale field trials and, and the commercial release of those crops. So now all of that's left at EPA, and I don't think EPA has said yet whether they're gonna require anything for small scale field trials for that. Um, second impact of the, of the rule is that there will be, I think in the past, the USDA regulatory system, whether, you, uh, uh, whether it was intended for this or not, that list that I provided you earlier of the, all the crops that have gone through the non-regulated status, that was a list of all GE plants that were being commercially grown in the United States or, or, or had the ability to be commercially grown in the United States. We will no longer under this new rule have an exclusive list that lists all genetic engineered plants that will be marketed because you have these exemptions and you can be self, you can self determine those exemptions. And so that has some implications potentially. Uh, while the US is not a party to the biosafety protocol, uh, the US does introduce information into the biosafety clearinghouse and the biosafety protocol, the international agreement that regulates uh, living modified organisms does talk about countries listing all of the genetically engineered products that have been commercialized and developed in their countries. It's unclear whether the US will, will or be able to do that. Um, and that's not just for gene edited crops, but for example, let's take a genetically engineered wheat. There is a genetically engineered wheat variety that's, that's glyphosate tolerant that has gone through USDA's regulatory process. It's not com currently commercialized, but if somebody wanted to develop that now, uh, they could do that and be exempt from any USDA oversight because they would have the same plant trait mechanism of action um, as the current one that's on the, on the deregulation uh, list. And so, and they could market that without anybody knowing that and without that put on the biosafety clearinghouse that we have now a genetically engineered wheat that's being grown in the United States. So that's just an example. Uh, there could be also marketing impacts if we don't have complete things, a, a complete list of genetic engineered products, how will the organic industry deal, deal with that? Um, and the non-GMO project, will we have inaccurate lists developed by others? Um, and then there's issues of potential labeling or disclosure that might come either government regulated by the USDA rule or just from market. Um, the other thing is that they'll, uh, under the new rule, there'll be a lot less um, public participation. Um, 
um, uh, in the process, the regulatory process currently now when a plant is deregulated and in some instances when there are field trials, there's um, an opportunity for the public to review the data before USDA makes a final decision. Um, under the new rule, only in the instance where there's a plausible plant pest risk under the regulatory status review will there be public participation. So that's a difference. Uh, and the final issue I just want to bring to everybody's attention is, you know, what impact this might have on trade and, and what we call asynchronous approvals, where something's approved in one country and the other. So there will be, I think, a lot of pro products that either are exempt or not regulated here in the United States. Um, how that will impact what happens in other countries, I think currently now, uh, I'll use the EU as the, as the extreme on the other side, everything that, that would fall within the definition here of genetic engineering would be regulated in the Europe. And so, you know, what will happen if uh, a prop doesn't need to be regulated in the United States, but needs to be regulated in the EU? Will a developer be allowed to market that? Will they be able to keep it only in the United States? Will uh, food industry members try to prevent that crop from getting out in commercial until it's been approved by the European Union? And so in some ways, you know, in the past, the gatekeeper to a commercial crop in the United States has been the US approving that. Uh, will in the end now the gatekeeper be the European Union or another country getting an approval for it before it gets to be grown by our farmers out there. So um, I'm going to end there and hope that we can have some questions. I'm sorry we're all not in person in a room where we could, I could see all of you and pe have people raise their hands and have a discussion. Um, but if I don't answer your questions today, feel free to email me and I'd be happy to try to uh, answer those or um, send them along to us and I'll do my best to try to answer them. Thanks, Joan. Great. Thanks, Greg. That was a very informative and interesting presentation. Um, you might want to just stop sharing your screen so we can okay. see better. Thanks. And it raised a number of interesting questions for me, but also um, some people in the audience. So I'll just start with their questions. So the first one is, what about multiple single edits? So um, I was trying to unshare my screen here, but having trouble figuring out how to do that. Okay, that's all right. If you're stuck, let's see if I can get you that. Um, okay, there you go. So the guidance on multiple single edits is still coming forward. So just a few days ago, USDA issued some uh, frequently asked questions and they do begin to talk about what happens with multiple edits. And it really depends, and so I don't think I can give a definitive answer. They do say if you have a single edit in one crop, in one, in one variety, and a single edit in another variety of the same crop, and you crossbreed them conventionally, then that would not be regulated. But if you put two edits into the same variety, that would be regulated, or at least it would have to go through the regulatory status review. So they're sort of, and similarly, if you, again, sort of they're doing similar to, for those of you who are, know what, how the U.S. government has regulated traditionally GMOs that are stacked. If you stack them, but if you stack them through conventional breeding, then you don't need to go through a new regulatory review. Whereas if you stack them in the same event or in two events in the same product, you needed to go through a regulatory review. USDA seems to be making that same distinction. Um, that's, a, that's about what I could tell for now on that. But I think that's still to be 
Uh, I think USDA is still being asked questions by developers and still sort of trying to figure out how they're going to deal with different types of multiple edits. We have a question from Facebook, and that is, um, how do regulations deal with off-target effects, e.g. unexpected mutations in other areas of the genome? So there's no mention at all of our off-target effects in the USDA regulations. If you um, fall within an exemption and you don't need scientific data, or you know, again, from a field trial or something else to fall within one of those exemptions, you're not regulated. And even the beginning of the regulatory status review, they're not looking at the specific edit you did in that, in that plant. They're looking at the trait you're introducing and the plant and the characteristics of that plant. So they're not doing a, uh, a, a transformation or edit specific review. They're reviewing them in a much broader level. Um, they're off targets. I think would come in if they get to the second phase of that regulatory status review. If they're looking at, if they believe that there's a plausible plant pest risk, then in that stage, they might look at that type of thing. But right now there is no uh, requirements to qualify for an exemption uh, and the issue is not around off targets. Okay, um, another question. Does this new rule have implications for FDA rules for GMO derived food or gene edited derived food? So the rule says that, you know, this doesn't affect the other agencies and what they may be doing. And, and so on one level, I think it has no impact on what FDA or EPA might do. However, we do know that the executive order and the way the federal government has historically regulated biotechnology, there is a coordinated effort. And so that doesn't mean they're going to have identical definitions, but one would hope that if USDA defines genetic engineering one way, you would hope that FDA defines genetic engineering a similar way uh, for, for continuity for, for both the public and for the regulated community. There's not a 100% guarantee of that, but I know that in particular, EPA is expected to come out with a proposed rule on how they're going to deal with genome edited plants that have pesticides built into them in the coming months. And I know that when this re the USDA rule was being finalized in the government and reviewed at the White House and Office of Bud Management and Budget, they brought in EPA to make sure there were consistencies, that there weren't, at least there weren't uh, obvious inconsistencies with what EPA might be doing and what USDA was going to be doing. So we don't know exactly, but the hope is that there is some coordination among them, but they are implementing different laws. And so that they won't be identical in any, in any, in, they won't be identical. Okay. Um, how are the various industry sectors reacting to the new rules? So I think that um, I could say that there's been several different kinds of reactions. Um, I think the issue of self-determination and whether you're going to require, whether companies are going to voluntarily confirm that has gotten a lot of reaction. Um, NGOs like the one I work for and other NGOs have, are very concerned about uh, the self-determination. I think there are lots of other food in, people in the food chain, the industries, particularly the grain handlers um, and, and even the food manufacturers, the CPGs, the companies are very concerned with the self-determination because they're not going to know what's in the food supply. So that lack of transparency that has existed in the past under the rule 
and won't exist in the future has been very concerning to people. So I think there's been a lot of concern about that in particular. Um, I think that there's some developers and others have a lot of clarifying questions about this difference between multiple edits and single edits and, and, and there's uncertainty when anytime you have new procedures like the regulatory status review, how that's actually gonna be implemented. You know, people do like what they're familiar with. Even if they don't love it, they know they're familiar with it. And so people were familiar with the old system and they worry about the, the new system. So I think there's, um, you know, the, I, you know I, I would say different parts of the, of the food chain have different concerns, but um, everybody's sort of uh, treading lightly at this point. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have another one from Abby, and that is how do they define mimic plants that can be generated conventionally? So, the, so the way the USDA rule says is if you're doing a single, if, 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 if for the exemption, I, I assume that, the, that Abby's asking about the exemption here, for a single deletion, it can be a single deletion of any size, but it's just a single deletion. Um, they talk about uh, where you don't have a template for that deletion, where that deletion, you, know, you have a break because of a CRISPR molecule and Cas9, for example, and uh, there's a, just a, a natural uh, recombination event that changes the, it, it adds a, de a deletion at that stage. And they do this, uh, they talk about a substitution, a single substitution, it really comes in when they talk about an addition. They say that you can have an addition and it's exempt if that addition is from the plants, the current plants gene pool. So they pretty much say it has to be identical to a gene that already exists. So if you wanted to introduce a gene um, using uh, gene, genetic engineering into a plant, you have to introduce the exact same gene. You can't in any way improve upon that gene, you know, tweak some of the amino acids or the base pairs in that gene. You have to actually show that it is something that currently exists. The idea that you could say, well, it could be, it could have been changed using conventional breeding with a mistake to be like this, isn't enough. It really has to mimic something that is identical to what already exists in that gene pool. And USDA admits even understanding that gene pools are not static. And so <laughs> they may have changed over time. So you may be actually mimicking something that quote unquote is not natural in that gene pool. They're not using the word natural. They're sort of saying you have to show that it exists in the gene pool. It mimics something that, that already exists today. It's great to see all these questions we're getting. So obviously this is the topic people have a great deal of interest in. Um, the next one is, what is your opinion about the effect of this new USDA regulatory framework on public acceptance of gene edited plants or GM plants? Will this more open regulation have an effect on the public's trust toward genetic engineering? So, I think, you know, obviously we don't know how this is actually going to be implemented. Um, but I think if, if um, my personal view is if there are a lot of uh, products that are self-determined to be exempt and we don't know about those, that's going to cause problems in the public's mind. I think, you know, while I've been a person who's always said that I don't think everybody in the public cares about whether their food is genetically engineered. And um, there is a, some segment of the public that does care about that. They care about it very passionately for whatever reason they care about it. And I think that, but I think most consumers don't want things hidden from them. And so if they're made aware that something's been hidden from them, they wonder why it's been hidden. 
And even if it's safe, they wonder, well, was it hidden because somebody says it's not safe or they didn't want me to know about it for some reason. So I think if we have a situation where a lot of developers take that route of self-determining and things are exempt and even USDA doesn't know they're out there, I can't imagine that's going to be good for the public. You know, when people ask questions is, is there a gene edited mushroom in the food supply? And people say, I don't know. And USDA says, I don't know if this product's been commercialized. I think that really hurts credibility, even if nobody cares about eating. Those people may not care about eating it. They may feel it's very safe to eat. They may want to eat it actually, or, or not be worried about eating it. But if somebody, if somebody can't answer the question about whether they're eating it or whether it's in the food side or whether it's being grown, or even a farmer doesn't know whether they're, whether what they're growing is something that's been through the regulatory system, I think that's going to be problematic. So Greg, do you think this is part of a process to just, they're really looking at efficiency here, or is this an effort by government to just sort of normalize these products in the eyes of the public, just as they may not know if there's a new conventionally bred, you know, variety of corn on the market, um, sort of now the same thing could be applying to products that are genetically engineered. So I'm just wondering where you're thinking the impetus for some of this is coming from. So I think the real problem is, is we've set up a, we set up a regulatory system decades ago based on a false scientific premise. We've based it on a premise that genetic engineering a crop has a potential plant pest risk associated with it. And using agrobacterium raised some risky, was some, in some ways a risky behavior. And so we set this regulatory system up and the regulatory system was expensive. It took time and it really didn't make these crops be any safer or any different. And so I think, you know, on one level, this, these changes are more science-based in the sense that we are saying, yes, using agrobacterium doesn't automatically make a crop risky. Adding a gene doesn't automatically make the crop risky. However, and so, so to that extent, I think it's a positive step. But at the same time, there are, there are impacts from genetically engineered crops. We've seen, in fact, in terms of you know resistant weeds developing and uh, pests developing resistance and impacts on organic agriculture and uh, and differentiations in the marketplace and so forth economic impacts and so forth so i think um uh, the agencies are constrained by the laws they're in and so we've become in some ways more scientifically honest for this particular law but in fact, it doesn't address many of the issues that people have around genetically engineered crops, the economic, social, and other uh, environmental impacts that arise. And so there's going to be a disconnect there, and that's going to be problematic moving forward. It will be interesting to see if the EPA and the FDA touch on those parts. Uh, the next question is, this is perfect for you as an attorney. And that is, do you anticipate that the final rule will be challenged in court? And if so, by whom and on what basis? So I think there's probably a good chance that the final rule will be challenged in court. I'm not sure I've seen any notices of that directly. Um, there clearly are some uh, non-government organizations, some uh, who, who, have, who have challenged many other USDA rules in this area. And so I would expect some of them might do that again. Uh, most of the time, those rules are challenged under the Administrative Procedures Act that says that they didn't properly, uh, that the government didn't follow, properly follow the procedures or under the National Environmental Protection Act, which says that they have to do an environmental impact assessment, which EPA did here. But the question is, 
the question they would arise would be whether that's adequate or not. So I think that we, I would expect that we would see a lawsuit. I expect the lawsuit would say that the decision USDA was, was arbitrary and capricious and not done according to the Administrative Procedures Act, following all the procedures that it didn't follow the National Environmental Protection Act. And I, I can't comment on whether that, without seeing what that lawsuit has and what the reasons are, whether there'll be merit behind that. I can say that, you know, the Trump administration recently has lost a number of cases that have been brought under similar claims about not following the legal procedures. And as a law lawyer, I do believe that, you know, that's what safeguards our government and allows us to have really good decision making is following those different kinds of procedures. And so if they didn't follow them, um, I, I think there probably could be a likelihood that a government, that a court could overturn them and make them go back and follow those procedures. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the next one is, how do the USDA's reasons for not regulating most single edits not apply to those with multiple edits? Breeders stack traits all the time. So, again, I, I would recommend the person who asked that question and anybody else to read the full Federal Register notice. I know most of you won't out there. I know it's pretty dense stuff, but it's actually really interesting. And USDA spends a lot of time about why they did not include multiple edits in the exemptions. And pretty much they said that, you know, their basis for the single edits is that these are things that could be done with conventional breeding. And while they claim, they, they agreed that many multiple edit things might also be done with conventional breeding, they couldn't say that across the board for all multiple edits, for all crops, for all different kinds of traits. And they felt that they were comfortable saying that for single deletions, additions, or substitutions, within the plant's gene pool, but they weren't comfortable for doing that with multiple edits. And that's why they gave that exemption, that petition for an exemption provision. They said, if you come to us and show us for a class or category of exemptions or you know, two exemptions for a specific crop, we're happy to look at that. So they felt that they could for some instances, but they couldn't do it. Remember, we're talking, and there's discussion in the Federal Register notice about you know, plants that have multiple chromosomes. You know, They said you could make the edits on one set of chromosomes, but if we're looking at a plant that has three sets of chromosomes and you're making therefore six edits, you know, to each of the each of the genes on each of the chromosomes to change a trait, that is really hard to do with conventional breeding. Virtually impossible to do with conventional breeding. And so if that's the argument for the exemption, we couldn't give the exemption here. And so they do have a, a fair amount of discussion about that. I think it's going to raise some interesting, hopefully some interesting scientific discourse as this moves forward. So we have another question from Facebook, and that is, will it have any impact on the labeling issue? So it, the answer is it's on, um, I don't think this will have any particular impact on the labeling issue. Um, just because something is exempt here does not mean that those products made from it will not be required to be labeled. So for example, if you had a crop that has the plant trait mechanism of action, a combination that, um, that is the same as an old one. And I gave the example of the genetically engineered wheat. That's not a commercial variety now, but if somebody decides to commercially release that now and qualifies for that exemption, we will now, and you have a food product that now has genetically engineered wheat in it, then that's gonna to require to be labeled. So you could have a product that's not, that's exempt from regulation under USDA that will be required to be labeled under the USDA disclosure rules. So there will, there will be differences out there. 
Sounds like a, another form of check and balance in terms of at least keeping the public informed. Uh, so we have GE plants listed in USDA databases have confidential business information omitted. Considering this, how can developers know what plant trait MOA accommodations have been previously reviewed? So that's a good question. So currently the MI regulated letters have lots of confidential business information exempted and you would know that. And those will not, if you, a, a existing MI regulated letter means that you, if you have that, that crop will be exempt from regulation under these new rules, but it won't fall under that uh, trait plant trait mechanism of action exemption. The ones that fall under the plant trait mechanism of action exemption, USDA will have a list of those. Those are the products for, for deregulation or non petitions for non-regulated status. And in those, while there is some CBI, there's a lot less CBI and, and they will make sure to provide that information so that somebody knows enough about the plant, the trait, and the mechanism of, of, of action to be able to see if they qualify for that. So in, in the instances where the public needs to, where the developer needs to know that, hopefully there will be enough information, but it will be to be seen. Mechanism of action may be something that a, a lot of companies consider their confidential business information. So uh, USDA does not say, they say that in the rule that they will protect confidential business information, they don't say how that will impact uh, these lists going forward. So we have a question from Facebook and also from the webinar audience that they're related. So I'll just give you both of them. One is, can you also expand on the impact on the European market uh, from your previous point in regard to who is the gatekeeper of GE implementation on US farms? And the other one is, you mentioned trade issues as a potential complication. How are other countries responding to the USDA's changes? So to answer the latter, I'm not sure how the other company, other countries are responding at this point. I mean, USDA mentions in their press release and in their information around this rule that they're going to educate their trading partners about this rule, about what their confirmation letter is and about their positions on these things. And they hope that that will smooth any trade issues that arise related to that. But, but that's to be seen. I haven't seen, I don't, I'm not aware of any countries that specifically wrote comments to the USDA, they could have wrote comments under the proposed rule. I'm not aware of any that did, although they might have. And I'm not aware that of any that have said, you know, whether we're gonna accept this or not accept this or do the same thing. It's really too new. And my guess is many of them will wait to see how it starts operating in practice. In terms of the EU, uh, you know, example, maybe I can give a, you know, a real life example that happened with, with what we call the more traditional genetically modified organisms, you know, so, you know, the uh, federal government and developers developed genetically engineered uh, soybeans that were round uh, that were Roundup ready, that were glyphosate resistant, and farmers grew those, and those got approved in the EU, and so they were ex those soybeans were exported to the EU to be put in food and and processed and other products. Um, there was a want by developers to introduce a number of other traits into soybeans, and the soybean farmers and the soybean industry really prevented that from happening because at that point, the, US, the EU regulatory system had stopped approving genetically engineered crops for a number of years there. And so if that had been approved, the EU would have stopped importing all of our soybeans. And so you know the, the food chain here, different interest groups, different industry players here stopped those developers from actually introducing those commercial 
those new traits into commercial varieties because of the EU uh, gate, gate that was not open for those to come. And so we could see a similar situation here where there are pro products that are exempt um, that could be grown in the United States, but if they're gonna be in products that are going to be exported to markets, unless those have been approved and pre-approved, others in the food chain may say, we don't wanna be worried, how are we going to segregate those? How are we going to change, uh, continue our exports and our exports are very valuable to us. So, so that's what I mean by the trade issues. We may have a situation where while something we believe something safe can be grown by our farmers and may be very beneficial to our farmers, other countries, because we export to them, um, may actually become the gatekeeper that prevents our farmers from getting access to those products. So we have about another eight questions. So we'll just go ahead and keep answering them, even if we go a little over time, if that's okay with you, Greg. Okay. Um, do you think this rule change will help smaller companies and public labs? So I obviously, obviously this, this rule change will decrease the regulatory burden. And to the extent that regulation, that, that the, either the perception of this regulation was that, that it was expensive or in reality it was expensive. And there's lots of data out there on both sides of that issue. So I'm not gonna take an opinion on that, but the, to the extent that it will reduce regulatory burden or um, the perception of regulatory burden, that will hopefully help a small, companies and academics do, do more in this area. But I think, you know, in the end, the ultimate issue is, do you get a, do you have a beneficial product that consumers and farmers and others want? Um, and that's an independent issue than whether that's regulated or not. And so that in the end is gonna be the most important thing is whether we have people being able to produce things that are safe and beneficial. So from Facebook, we have, how are, will, can the risks of breeders unknowingly using gene-edited germplasm be addressed? Would this be possible? Um, it's going to be very difficult. That's, I mean, I, my, my short answer is, right, you're, um, if we don't have, if we don't know what's been commercial or what's been out there and what's in a particular germ, a pool or a particular uh, variety and where that came from, you could have some risk associated with it um, when it comes to developing something um, and then trying to get it out there if in fact it, because we are gonna have a situation where at least in the immediate future, our country and our trading partners will not have the same regulatory systems. And so as long as they have different regulatory systems, and different definitions that will that those will issues will arise all right so what about off-target effects even though gene editing is extremely precise do you think it is important to look for putative off targets so the regulatory system is not addressing the issue of off targets you know they the, the, to the extent that they address it in the proposed rule they say that you get lots of off targets with conventional breeding things like mutagenesis breeding and so forth. And so in some ways, gene editing has less off targets than those. And therefore, that's why they're comfortable with exempting those things, because those don't lead necessarily to plant, plausible plant pest risks. They're not saying they don't lead to other risks. But again, USDA is focused on the plant pest risks. And their view is conventional crops that have been conventionally bred 
generally don't have plant pest risks. And so if you're mimicking something that's conventionally bred, then you're generally not going to have a plant pest risk. But we know that off-targets may have other kinds of risks. They may have risks that might be a food safety risk or some other thing. And we'll have to look to other agencies as to what they're going to do there. But right now, the way the system is being set up, that is not a primary interest of the system at this point. Okay. Um, if the new USDA system is lighter on regulation and quicker for new biotech products to get to market, why did you suggest that new products may be registered, accessed first in the EU and later in the US? Did we misunderstand your comment? Um, please clarify. So again, I'm not sure if I'm saying that, but I, I guess what I was saying is they, they may be very quick to go through the US system but that may be different than whether they actually get planted and utilized in the U.S. That the issue becomes if they are a crop that is exported, then what we've learned in the past is, is much of the food chain wants to know that, the, that it's also safe and been approved in the export market. And so then the gatekeeper becomes that export market country, not our country. So even though things move quickly here, that in terms of regulation, that doesn't necessarily mean it goes quickly here in terms of adoption. Right. Uh, the first two, the first two USDA rules invoked their noxious weed authority, and Secure does not. Do you know why? Is this part of why their first two attempts were rescinded? So, so the the questionnaire is is correct that the first two rules. One of the things. Um, so, so a little background. Um, when USDA first started regulating genetically engineered plants, um, they did it under the Plant Pest Act, in in two thousand. There was a plant pest act and there was a noxious before 2000 the usda had a number of laws that congress had passed one was the plant pest act and one was the noxious weed act and usda had only used the plant pest act in its oversight of genetically engineered plants and so in 2000 those laws were combined into the plant protection act by congress they consolidated the laws um, and so you had noxious weed provisions as well as plant pest provisions so when usda proposed made its proposal in 2008 and in 2017, it proposed adding the noxious weed provisions to its oversight and looking at noxious weed impacts uh, as well as plant pest impacts. And a lot of people, including myself, were supported that. I think that would only cover a small percentage of genetically engineered plants, but, but those, for those of us in the agricultural fields who know noxious weeds, they can be really harmful. And so should we be considering that? Uh, USDA in the final rule here did not include those noxious weed provisions. They said that they automatically do a plant, a noxious weed assessment generally, and that their general regulations for noxious weeds, which don't have any specific genetic engineering specific provisions, would be sufficient here. So that's their argument. I think that's something that people could debate, whether they should have had a specific provision here or not, and whether that will get lost. Would they do their oversight and they won't? look closely enough at that, but that was their analysis. Okay. Why was self-determination included? Um, I, you know, I actually don't have a, you know, I don't have a good answer to that question. I, I think they, I'm, I'm not sure there's, you know, I'm not sure that there's a lot of explanation in the proposed rule or the final rule about why they did that. But I think it was just the ability, you know, um, to, to streamline things that make them quick and to allow uh, the developers to determine that. 
as opposed to people coming to USDA. It was, a, it was a, an attempt to deregulate, to have less things coming to USDA. Per your example about not knowing if there is a GE mushroom in the food supply under the new rule, is there anything under the current system absolutely ensuring that isn't the case? Is that really a change? No, that in, to some extent that isn't. I mean, we have things that go through the regulatory process at USDA for field trials, and then we have things that get the petition for non-regulated status. Just because you get the petition for non-regulated status, as I mentioned, there are more than 140 plants that have been uh, deregulated under that petition process, and yet we don't have 140 varieties of crops out there that are genetic engineered currently being grown uh, in the marketplace and in the marketplace. So only a percentage of those actually even make it to market. But we do know that if it's not on that list, then it's probably, you know, then there's a 99.99% certainty that it's not a commercial product. So, so while it doesn't ensure that something on that list is commercial and currently being grown by farmers, it does ensure that if it's not on that list, then it's not being, that there isn't, then that genetically engineered variety doesn't exist in the marketplace. Why is the USDA not maintaining a list of biotech enhanced food products? As a consumer, does the USDA take any responsibility to conforming, to confirming safety of ag products or has it left that entirely to the FDA? So what USDA is, the list that USDA is now inclu includes with the bioengineered disclosure rule is a list of crops that, that have genetic, are genetically engineered as well as the salmon that's out there. So they do have a list of, of I think 12 or 14 crops that are uh, food crops that are genetically engineered to give food manufacturers the ability to start asking the right questions about whether they have ingredients from those crops that might require disclosure. So that so USDA has that list. And then, as I said, they've always had this list of, of all the crops that have petitions for non-regulated status. Um, but they, you know, they haven't uh, put together other lists, which could be extremely beneficial um, not necessarily for safety, but for marketing purposes, but they have not done that. Um, but in the end, for plants, uh, FDA is the, is the agency that is in charge of food safety, food and feed safety. So USDA does have some oversight for safety of certain kinds of foods, in particular um, animals, certain animals like cattle and pigs and chickens, those uh, meats and poultry fall under USDA safety. So if you had a genetically engineered or gene edited um, animal that, you know, fall within USDA's authority, then there might be a food safety issue that they might deal with. But for plants, the safety of all plants that are grown and eaten in the United States is done by FDA. All right, so we have our last question and it came from Facebook. Could the ruling lead to the use of gene editing for national rather than international markets? In other words, could it lead to investment in more specialty locally consumed crops? More broadly, if export crops are blocked, how do you see the industry adapting? That's quite a question to wrap up so, with. <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer that question. I can say that, you know, for example, the first gene edited crop that's been commercial, one of the first gene edited crops that's been commercial in the United States is Calex's high oleic soybean oil, which has two edits and soybean silences two genes to provide a high oleic soybean oil. And that's being grown in a closed loop system in the, in the Midwest and the United States. And that oil is being put into our food supply and being utilized by food manufacturers in our food supply. 
So that is a high, arguably by the company, high value um, product that has a niche market. Um, I don't believe that that product has been approved in the European Union or other. I think it maybe has been, been, been through the regulatory process in Canada, but hasn't been through the regulatory process in most of our foreign markets. For now, I guess they're doing it in a closed loop system. And so there's confidence that that's not getting into our, our soybeans, uh, the grain trade that's going to those other markets. Um, so you could have much more development of, of those small niche kinds of things, but it will really depend on how they relate to export markets and, and, and whether they introduce risk to others in the food chain that would cause them to want to uh, manage how those are, are utilized. Um, then the last um, thing I wanted to bring up was that um, on when Thursday we'll have our next Alliance for Science, uh, Alliance for Science Live broadcast, and that will be a discussion of what's happening with vaccines for COVID and the top five most promising candidates. Then next Tuesday, we'll have a five-member panel talking about conspiracy theories, why they're so popular and enduring, and what's taking off in the time of COVID. So that should be an interesting one. And otherwise, I think I just want to say thanks so much, Greg, for taking the time to be with us today and giving us so much good information. And it's great to see you had all the answers for the questions, and we had a lot of great participation from the audience. So thank you. Well, thank you all for uh, listening in today. And as I said, if there are future questions in the, in the future, please let me know. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Greg. We'll see you again. Bye. Bye.